Ted Shetler, welcome to the new school. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm here with my colleague Cheryl Patton, who is the director of the Commonweal Biomonitoring Resource Center. And we're here to talk with you about what you call the ecological paradigm of health. Before we begin that conversation, let me just introduce you briefly. You are a physician. You are the science director of the Science and Environmental Health Network and also science director of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, where you and Charles and I work together. It's a partnership of 4,000 people around the world interested in how the environment's affecting our health. And in our interest uh, in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which we call CHE, about how the environment's affecting our health, we spend a lot of time thinking about how chemicals affect our health, endocrine disrupting chemicals and the like. But we also have developed from the start a much broader sense that it's not just chemicals, that it's diet and nutrition, that it's uh, income disparities, that it's a whole incredible range of different factors that are working together in unbelievably complex combinations. And it seems to me that what you describe as the ecological uh, paradigm of health has come out of our efforts to wrestle with that complexity. Is that a fair statement? I think that's right. It is a fair statement. Uh, and you'll notice uh, in your description of some of the variables that we talk about, some of them were things that are sort of uh, applied to the individual and some apply to the community. So when you talked about income disparities, that's, that's sort of a community level or a society level variable that doesn't have much meaning at the individual level. But in fact, something like that can have an impact on the individual. So I think that you're absolutely right. We, we begin to understand the complexity of variables at multiple levels, at the individual level, at the family and community level, and at the ecosystem level. That, that then can have their, their uh, manifestations, either in individual health uh, or in public health. And why do you call it the ecological paradigm of health? What, what, why did that adjective make the most sense to you to describe it? Well, for me, it, it's a reminder that uh, the, the field of ecology has been thinking about complex systems for a long time at multiple levels with multi, multiple variables that are connected in complex ways and with lots of interactions. And, and others call it an eco-social model or paradigm, for example. And I, I don't think that the, that the name is, is critically important, but, but, but the, the concepts of there being multiple levels uh, that um, are manifest at each level uh, after all, we as individuals have an impact on the integrity and health of our ecosystems, just as our ecosystems have uh, an impact on us individually and as families uh, and communities. Um, and, and also there's a dimension of time that I think is important. Uh, there's, there's, there's historical time. Uh, there's lifetime of individuals where we know that, for example, the health of an individual later in life uh, to some extent is influenced by early life experiences, whether it's uh, social circumstances or chemical exposures or dietary variables over a lifetime. So there are a number of axes here that I think come together and, and the ecological paradigm is a, is a way of trying to describe that. 
Cheryl Patton, as, as director of the Commonweal Biomonitoring Resource Center, you have spent uh, a decade or more uh, testing people for chemicals in our bloodstream, just to give an example of what Ted's talking about. Roughly how many chemicals do we all carry in our bodies? Mm -hmm. I think that's anybody's guess at this point. At one point, the U.S. EPA estimated we carry about 600 chemicals in our body. But they based that estimate on the idea that there are many chemicals out there that are uh, the product of industrial processes that aren't characterized, that have no name. So we have uh, hundreds of chemicals in our bodies we actually know about, but there also may be many other chemicals that we don't even have the names for yet. But we could have quite a few. Now, many of them may, may be benign. We simply don't know that. And has technology changed the levels at which we're able to measure those chemicals in our I bodies? I think probably in the past 20 years, the, the technology has helped us become more and more precise about what we can actually find in the human body. So we're able to measure tinier and tinier levels in the human body. And consequently, we can start looking at the effects of those tinier, tinier levels at different times during the lifespan. And, and Ted has been uh, uh, helping us in many of our biomonitoring projects uh, when we give uh, results communications to individuals, often they're quite dismayed to find that their bodies carry small levels of toxic chemicals. And uh, Ted, what do you tell them when you talk to them about levels of toxic chemicals in their body, what the impact of that is, and, and, and try to talk to them as well about how many other factors uh, moderate the effect of a toxic chemical on a human body? Well, biomonitoring studies um, are useful for documenting exposures. Um, they, they don't uh, even pretend to uh, be describing effects of those exposures. And so it's important from the outset that people understand that. Mm -hmm. There are a few chemicals that are commonly biomonitored that we do know something about in terms of what levels are associated with what effects, usually at a population level. So, for mm -hmm. example, we've been biomonitoring lead levels in children for decades, mm -hmm. and, and we know something about... Uh, at a population level or a group level, what outcomes are associated with what levels. But it's difficult and, and somewhat treacherous to try to take that information from a group level or a population level and apply it to an individual. So we have to be very careful doing that. And we know that some people uh, are, are more susceptible or more vulnerable to a chemical exposure than others because, for example, of underlying contextual reasons. Maybe uh, nutritional variables or social circumstances make them more or less vulnerable or mm -hmm. more or less resilient. Mm -hmm. um, so it's always important to look at it in context. But lead and mercury and a few others are exceptions. For many of them that we can biomonitor, we simply don't know what the health impacts are. Well, that's what I think is interesting, that yeah. there are reference doses for some of the heavy metals right. and some right. other things. But a lot of chemicals, when you talk to people, you have to just say, well, uh, we can't say what the effect is for you because there's so many other things involved. Right. Stress, genetic inheritance, socioeconomic status. That's right. Things like that. That brings us back to this ecological paradigm. Back to that, exactly. Yeah. So what is the difference? I think many scientists would agree, many physicians would agree, that many of the diseases of our time are what people call multifactorial diseases. Uh, that there are many, many different factors that contribute to breast cancer or learning disabilities or autism or infertility or asthma or uh, coronary artery disease, whatever it is. What's the difference between speaking of uh, diseases multifactorial 
and speaking of an ecological paradigm of health with respect to those factors? Well, one difference it often is that the multiple factors that are usually talked about in the biomedical model are individual factors. So, for example, with coronary artery disease, we talk about cholesterol levels, uh, blood pressure, exercise, uh, presence or absence of obesity, genetic inheritance, uh, those kinds of variables that, that um, uh, are measurable and have meaning at the individual level. Uh, and, and that's fine. Uh, on the other hand, what we also see is uh, when societies undergo a transformation in their development, for example. Uh, we're seeing this in India right now, where uh, uh, um, many sort of Western habits are being adopted, in including a, a, a very Western diet um, that's full of refined carbohydrates and a different distribution of fats, more meat and that kind of thing. And, and India, like many other uh, countries, is seeing the emergence of a whole pattern of diseases that uh, uh, are similar to what we are dealing with here in the United States. Diabetes and obesity and cardiovascular disease are exploding mm -hmm. in India. Um, and uh, so, Yes, it's possible to talk about those risk factors at an individual level, but I think it's also useful to, to, to look at a societal level about what were the conditions that were created uh, that allowed this emergence of a new pattern of disease. Now, when you talk about how in India a change in dietary habits has been associated with this explosion of of Western-style diseases. And we know from studies of immigrant populations that people come to the United States and within, what, two generations have much the same patterns of disease that we, we have in the United States as opposed to what they had in their country of origin. Right. Um, but doesn't that suggest that, uh, that dietary transformation is one of the extremely powerful variables within this very complex ecological paradigm of health. It does, uh, and I think it is a powerful variable, but along with that uh, set of variables that are characteristic of our diet, and, and by the way, the, the agricultural system that makes that food available, uh, and cheaply available in many cases, it needs to be looked at as well as just what people select when they go to the store and go shopping. Um, but um, along with the, the diet is a different lifestyle, sedentary lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Less, uh, you know, less exercise or, or uh, as an example. And social stressors uh, that are also typical uh, of, 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 of in the United States and, and other westernizing countries um, that also have a very uh, distinct and identifiable biologic manifestations. I mean, there are literally biomarkers that uh, change their values as a result of social stressors. So it's, it, again, it's difficult to tease this apart and to just apportion uh, certain outcomes to diet or exercise or social stressors, but it's the, it's the entire sort, sort of milieu, of, 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 of a contextual milieu that begins to create the conditions out of which these patterns emerge. You and I were recently uh, participants in a, a training program for breast cancer advocates, uh, uh, helping them look at the uh, environmental health science and biology behind breast cancer. 
And um, I had listened to you talk about the ecological paradigm of health many times, but I had one of those kind of aha moments, even though I've been thinking about this with you for over 10 years, where it really came to me that maybe the epidemic of breast cancer, instead of being simply an unbelievably complex question of which combination of variables lead to it, was actually, to some degree or potentially to a large degree, a systemic problem. That it was, just as you've pointed out, if you look at ecosystems, uh, ecological scientists uh, recognize that there are just points at which an ecosystem breaks down. And there may have been innumerable factors that contribute to the system breakdown, but at a certain point, the system just breaks down. And so the question arises, what if, to some degree that we don't know, instead of simply being complex multifactorial diseases of complex origin, these are ecosystem breakdown diseases, where our internal ecosystems, just like the larger ecosystems within which we live, actually at a certain point simply break down. And then they manifest in different common pathways, like breast cancer, autism, or you know, neurological diseases, depending on our genetic heritage. And it somehow it was a kind of a shift, and just like Bill Clinton's campaign for the presidency, you know, the, the, the byword was, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, and somehow it came to me that maybe what the ecological paradigm of health is saying is that in, to some degree that we don't know, it's the ecosystem, stupid. It's, it's the whole system. You can't, you can't even simply think about it in terms of multifactorial factors contributing in some complex way, but the system itself breaks yeah, down. Yeah. Am I getting yeah, yeah, that? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, and, and maybe instead of, uh, of talking about the system breaking down, right. And I can see why we would go there is because right. we don't like when certain right. things happen, right. and right. so it, it looks like a breakdown. But that the that the system has new operating uh, conditions. Uh huh. And 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 systems that are complex like this have emergent properties. And I mean, I think that's one of the important ideas that the discipline of ecology brings to this is is the notion of systems having emergent properties that cannot be predicted. Or, or even, um, um, or, or known in, in many ways from looking at the individual variables that make it up. So at some point, you're absolutely right. We look at the, we look from the top down as well as from the bottom up and talk about the emergent properties. And I think that that's useful um, as, as a way of creating a mental model of, of how to think about some of these complex diseases. So it's probably no coincidence that we're seeing trends in breast cancer, diabetes, heart disease, dementia, learning disabilities, others that you've mentioned, have emerged out of system conditions that we've created. We have a long history, of course, in Western science of trying to take these systems apart and studying the individual pieces of them. But at some point, we have to also be willing to put them back together and, and think about the, the, the uh, emerging properties that come from the whole. Cheryl Patton, you're, right now, you are biomonitoring firefighters around the United States. 
Uh, these are people who are regularly exposed to all kinds of uh, chemical contaminants and fires uh, and also live with a whole lot of other stresses of being firefighters. As you talk to them, are these issues of real living concern to them, the exposures that they have? Well, it's a question I ask them uh, when I do consent forms with them. And of course, I, when you consent in a project like this, you're always describing the risks and benefits of the project. And when I tell them about the risk of needle puncture, might cause some soreness in the site, they all just laugh at me. They say, you're talking to a firefighter here. <laughs> but the next question that's not a consent form is I ask them, do you have concerns when you go out and fight a fire about chemicals, toxic chemicals? And to a person, they do. They say they are worried about it because they don't know what's coming into their lungs. Uh, they have protective equipment. Sometimes they take off the protective equipment. When they don't, they're not sure how protective it is. And the reason they're concerned, of course, is they feel bad afterwards. They say that black stuff is coming out of their lungs and mouths, their ears afterwards. Everything smells. And that they're starting anecdotally to report that firefighters, some firefighters, it seems as if, are coming down with rare cancers now that they may be experiencing in the firehouses 20 years ago, starting to have a little problem having babies when they want. No one's keeping track of this, but there are concerns about this. Mm -hmm. And so, these are people that are heroes. They take it on the risk. Uh, they're committed, do the job, do it well. They're not the kind of people that would be concerned. And they're not the, the worried well. It's a different population here that's starting to think about what it means to, to, in order to support your families, subject yourself to unsafe conditions like this. So, if we were talking to ordinary people about what we're saying to each other in fairly complicated technical terms right now, do we have a language that simply communicates what we're saying in simple way? I think it's the search for the right language is important. But I also think that a lot of what we're talking about is intuitive. Uh, and uh, I think that um, people have been drawn away from their intuition uh, uh, to, to a more uh, fragmented uh, view of the world and a fragmented way of talking about things because our social systems, our social institutions have begun to require that. You know, um, there's an interesting book uh, called The Geography of Thought, in which the author uh, did some uh, actual experimental work and was able to show that uh, people whose uh, cultural origins were from the East, from Asia, looked at a scene that they were given to look at very differently from people who cultural origins were from the West. And he could tell that with certainty because they looked at this scene through uh, a, a stereoscopic sort of view, viewer that was able to, to measure and quantify eye movements. Mm -hmm. And so confronted with a complex mm -hmm. scene, he could tell exactly what the individual was looking at and not looking at. And, and people from the East looked at this very different and described it differently than people from, from the West. And, and, and the take-home message was that people from the East, in general, and this is a generality, tended to look at the totality of the scene and tended to look at the entire context 
rather than at the individual pieces, whereas the people from the West were more inclined to, to focus in on specific things right from the outset, and then when describing it, they would describe pieces of this. Um, so what I, what I sense here is that there's some cultural origins to this as well. And what I'm you know, interested in and struggle with to some extent is finding the language uh, as well as, 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 as the mm-hmm. sort of the, 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 the model for, for putting this back into that larger context regularly while also paying attention to the pieces. So I think there are language challenges. Cheryl, when you talk to the people that you biomonitor, farm workers in the Central Valley, uh, mothers in Africa where you're testing their breast milk and so forth, what language do you use to talk about the, the complexity of, of causation and, and what we're calling the ecological paradigm mm-hmm. of health? Well, in any, any, any project, the, the first thing you want to do is to develop a trusting relationship. And that's the most important thing, to spend a lot of time with the people you're biomonitoring so they get to know who you are, you get to know who they are a little bit, and you you talk about how they want to approach the whole project and do they want to, to read things, do they want to have conversations, just how people learn, uh, how they want to receive information is really important. And so through that process, you kind of get a sense of how they want to think about it. So surprisingly, uh, people will be way ahead of me quite often because they've been thinking about this a lot. So a woman in Kenya, well, when she talks about chemicals and breast milk, she'll say things like, well, the air is contaminated, but we must breathe. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a beautiful line? So she continues the to breastfeed. The air is contaminated, but we must breathe. And she had mm-hmm. very high levels of DDT in her breast mm-hmm. milk, mm-hmm. despite the fact that DDT is at this point illegal in Kenya, and she hadn't traveled outside Kenya. Mm-hmm. She was quite concerned yeah. about it, but... She had to make that difficult choice. So that's one thing. And the other, I think, is that we just talk about all the factors that can have an impact on their health and the well-being of the community. And then we talk about, well, what is it here that we can change? We may not be able to change in the California Central Valley land ownership and distribution, but we can talk about limiting pesticide exposures. That's something we can work on. So you work, even though we talk about the big picture, we talk about what is it we can change, what, what is it the best way to, to stop harmful pesticide exposures, and we do that. But what I'm always interested in is, uh, is some work we, I've been reading recently that I've talked to you about, which is the whole idea that it's not, uh, when we talk about socioeconomic status, it's not necessarily who's rich and has access to this and that and the poor, but the definitive thing is how big the gap is between rich and poor and what that does to a society in terms of well-being. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about that. Well, it's a, it's a favorite topic of people in public health work who have noted for years that the, that the gap, the disparity itself, and not the absolute values of how rich or how poor, but the gap itself is, is uh, um, a strong determinant of health status. Mm-hmm. And there are examples uh, around the world where uh, um, one of the favorite examples historically has been the state of Kerala, India, where it's not only people live very modest lives, but the gap is small between the people who are 
well off and the people who are not as well off. The gap is small. And the other there is women are uh, empowered, um, have st status that isn't always the case in other states. That combination uh, has set up the conditions for uh, um, uh, better health for all individuals uh, compared to other states where those, where those are not the case. You know, it's such a powerful variable, and I often say to people that if I had a magic wand and could change one thing in American society for health, I wouldn't change chemicals, I would change income disparities. Yeah. In other words, it's the single most powerful predictor of health outcomes. And, uh, you know, it's the one thing, it's very hard uh, to change uh, uh, chemical exposures overnight, but actually if there was the political will, we could change income disparities with tax laws uh, very dramatically, you know. Right. And uh, so going back to the ecological paradigm of health, um, is it fair to say that there are maybe at least three different levels? There's the, the biomedical level, whatever language we want to use, that focuses on the individual. There's the public health paradigm that focuses on uh, populations. And then there's the ecological paradigm, which is a level beyond public health in some way. Is that a fair? I set think of that's perception? right. I mean, that's the way I think of it. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, recognizing that the ecological level or model has a strong social component as well. So <laughs> it really is ecosocial. Um, we can't, uh, you know, we know we can, we really can't separate humans from the ecosystem. I mean, right. we're, we're such a strong influence on on the quality of the ecosystems. But it's true. I mean, to, to pick up on the comment about Kenya and and I need to breathe. Uh, you know, it's rainwater that's coursing through our circulatory system. I mean, that it is rainwater. Mm -hmm. um, and if we think about the inhabitants of our intestine, I mean, the trillions of bacteria. Uh, you know, this, this, this sort of isolation of the individual outside of nature, I mean, very quickly breaks down when you start mm -hmm. to think that, that, you know, the ecosystem is reflected inside of us in many, many ways. So uh, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, the public health model moves in that direction, but it often stops short of, of, of truly embracing the... Uh, what we sometimes call the natural world, but it's, it, it's really the, the ecological systems in which we live. Mm -hmm. And each of those levels uh, has its own scientific assumptions and presumptions and so forth, is that right? It does, and, and, and also a history of how it's been studied and the questions that have been asked. And, um, uh, and, and to pick up on the, th the, the political thread that you introduced a moment ago, you said if we had the political will, I think it, that it's important also to recognize that, uh, that pol politics influences what we study and what gets funded and, and what questions get asked and, um, and, and drives a research agenda that is not necessarily a research agenda that would be in the public interest. Um, and something that we in the Science and Environmental Health Network uh, uh, talk about a lot is what would a research agenda in the public interest look like? And it might be very, very different from what we're funding right now. What would a science agenda in the public interest look like? Well, uh, <clears throat> it would be interesting to ask the public. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be a place to start. 
we've done a little bit of, of work along those lines, but uh, if you go into some of the communities that uh, you've done some biomonitoring, if we were to go into the Central Valley and, and ask uh, uh, people there what, what are the burning questions that deserve some attention, uh, we, we would probably get some very interesting answers, and we should be open to that. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a very different set of questions there than it might be in Chicago or, or in, in upper New England, mm -hmm. um, because circumstances are different. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I think we, we begin to get at it by asking the public and, and in specific places. I think it's so important because I've got to say, working in this community is the most important thing to them right away is they want to be heard. They want to be heard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they're frustrated, of course, because uh, we've, we've been talking recently about the birth defects that have been identified in Kettleman here in, in, in California, mm -hmm. um, and, a, and, a, and a whole large number of, of variables that can contribute to adverse health outcomes have been identified. I mean, there's not only hazardous waste, there's all of the farm chemicals, uh, the pollutants associated with heavy traffic, mm -hmm. uh, the, the whole nutritional uh, dietary aspect, uh, immigrant status, mm -hmm. uh, it goes on and on. And um, uh, so we would need in a place like that to, to go in with an open mind in terms of what what are the burning questions and how and and be open to how we might study them and it wouldn't necessarily be by taking these individual things apart and just tracing one thread through that community right and, and but they often want answers they often want to know what if, if what is causing this is if no, they can come up with does. one single answer and there's always a sense that we may not be able to say that this particular chemical exposure is causing all this right. stuff in your community and that's always kind of the hard thing to deal with i think but when we do uh, toxic chemical work out in out in the world, a lot of groups come together to talk about toxic chemicals because they can't talk about it. other kinds of uh, sociological shifts that they'd like to see. They can't talk about uh, getting land back, but if they they can talk about children's health, you're talking about in other countries. In other countries, and, and where to some it may sense, be illegal or dangerous to talk about yes. land reform or. Democratic freedoms or women's empowerment. Or something they might like get that. shot. They might right. get shot. Right. And in this country, they talk too much about this and that. They may get deported, or uh, mm -hmm. the whole crew that's working out in the, the the fields might get fired because one person stood up to say anything. But if you talk about children's health, then you have a bunch of allies immediately. Mm -hmm. So, so you work there because it's a place to start. It's a place to build connections and kind of uncover, not create, but uncover the community that's actually there. You know, Ted, I was, I was talking uh, just recently to a colleague of ours who has great respect for you and the ecological paradigm of health. And uh, he said to me, I've heard Ted give that talk on ecological paradigms of health a number of times, but if you say to people, it's the whole system, uh, how do you get to the key variables that you need to work on? What's your response to that question? Yeah, it's, a, it's an important question. And... Uh, you know, a lot of scientists have struggled with that uh, um, very question. Uh, in the world of ecology, for example, uh, if, you, if you sort of look at that literature, you find that they're asking exactly the same questions. Often you can identify two or three variables that seem to be most determinative of the state of the system. 
But uh, you, I think, it's, so it's worth exploring that, but I think that you have to bring analytic techniques to it that um, are, are meant for so that kind of a systems analysis. Um, and often in the biomedical world, that isn't what goes on. I mean, in the biomedical mm -hmm. world, people often try to hold all, a whole bunch of variables except the one of interest mm -hmm. st at, at, at some value, so-called so correct for all of these other things, mm -hmm. control for all these other things, and then look at the impact of this particular. But, but if you do that, you don't appreciate the rich interactions mm -hmm. of how that variable of interest its influence might change in cha when, when these others change. And so you have to at least bring a few of these others in and let them change together and then bring statistical techniques to that analysis mm -hmm. that enable you to see how system conditions change when a few things are, are in flux together. It, so it's not as if you know, we go away from looking at individual variables uh, and only look at the system. But we have to be open to these interactions, trying to identify the ones that are most determinative and also be open to the various levels that I, that I mentioned. I mean, it may be, for example, there are some examples of this, uh, uh, traffic air pollution as measured in a personal monitor. So it's an individual level variable. What did I breathe? Mm -hmm. But I live in a community where uh, the socioeconomic status is, uh, is, is lower than it is in another community. But everything else is equal. People with, living in the community of lower socioeconomic status are more susceptible to the, uh, to the air pollution in terms of asthma attacks. So this is, this is a, a personal level variable and a community level, level variable that are interacting. Um, and that's helpful. For, because asthma is another one of these complex mm -hmm. diseases yeah. with multiple things and, and probably a lot of heterogeneity in terms of how people end up wheezing. There are many different ways to get there with that diagnosis and that set of symptoms. So if we took breast cancer as an example, um, are there approaches to the study of breast cancer based on the ecological paradigm of health that you believe would uh, be asking the right questions and be susceptible of giving us science-based answers? Well, I, I don't know that I know that or believe it, but I'm, I, I suspect that it would be helpful. Uh, the reason I come to that point is uh, if, you, if, if you look back over the last 20 years of research, uh, or 30 years or 40 years of research, I mean, we're still sort of in the dark with respect to breast cancer and several other, you know, complex diseases. Um, and um, I've wondered whether or not it's useful to think about breast cancer as being an ecological disease. I've wondered if it's useful to think about the, the developing breast, the maturing breast, uh, and then the adult breast as an ecosystem uh, nested, of course, not only in an individual, but in a family, in a community, in a society, and an ecosystem, uh, and whether bringing sort of this ecological paradigm of thinking to it might be helpful be, and, and, and get us away from where we seem to be stuck. And there, there is some research going on in this line now, at least the development of some new models. Um, uh, the California Breast Cancer Research Program has, has funded 
a project uh, that's developing a, a more ecological model of, of, of breast cancer. And we look forward to seeing where that might lead and what that might stimulate in the way of thinking. So I, you know, at some level, I have to say it's a hypothesis at this point that it might be useful, but I, I, I can't help but think that we're, we're watching the patterns of breast cancer and how they've changed over the last number of decades um, and, and think that we need, to be, we need to be thinking about it as an emerging property, an emerging uh, condition out of this, out of <laughs> that, that has developed out of these ecological changes uh, and whether that might stimulate some new thinking and research. Is there any disease that you believe there is evidence that it is an ecological disease? Well, I mean, diabetes uh, and obesity are good examples, I think, where uh, without question you can, you can identify um, multi-level variables that are contributing to what we're seeing. And so, for example, it, it, with diabetes or obesity, it's not just what the individual eats uh, and the presence or absence of exercise at the individual level, but it's the agricultural system mm -hmm. that has provided the food that's available to people, and the and the and the political context that has created cer certain kinds of price supports for certain kinds of commodity crops as opposed to others, so that people who are living in certain communities who have limited access to transportation have no choice but to eat certain kinds of food that are clearly going to increase the risk of developing obesity and diabetes, without question. Uh, and it's not a matter of an individual making a poor choice. It's what the system has provided to them. Um, and uh, so I, I think these, and, and these are common problems. They're pervasive uh, in society. Uh, obesity and diabetes, huge, big ticket items. You're gonna, uh, uh, Huge healthcare implications, cost implications, Medicare implications, mm -hmm. federal budget implications. We need to think of them at a systems level as well as just fine to give people dietary advice and advise people to exercise and so forth, but this has to be changed at the system level. Let me add just another idea there. This may be a little bit off the wall, but remember the study, Ted, about women in Europe during World War II that didn't get enough food when they're pregnant? and that the resulting offspring, when times were good, tend to be very chunky little kids, right? Because right. apparently in utero, things happened that skew their metabolism. So once they were then around a healthy diet, they couldn't right. handle the fat. Right. So now I'm thinking in this country, it is such a big deal for women to be incredibly thin, and there's an epidemic of anorexia. So women are essentially starving themselves. So maybe when they're pregnant, the same thing kind of happens as it happened to women in World War II. Once they give birth to kids, the kids become a little chunky because their bodies in utero didn't develop the capacity to handle a rich, a fattier diet. And that's just an idea, but I'm just saying, here's another way when we think about what, what uh, is considered attractive in women as a societal thing might in fact have some impact on how, how much all these little kids weigh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But those kind of things... Well, but it's very important, this idea of imprinting gene expression mm -hmm. during in utero development. This is an area that's getting an explosion of research, obviously, but uh, uh, and, and metabolic pathways are, are among those that are imprinted during in utero development. So the, kind of the societal thing, the whole idea about what makes an attractive woman is starting to play into obesity. It's just an idea. 
And related to that, in a way, uh, Ted, is a, a question y you and I have discussed a lot, which is the, the interesting fit between the ecological paradigm of disease and integrative health care as a form of both individual and public health uh, uh, response to increase resilience uh, to these deteriorating collective conditions. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, th those have been interesting conversations that we've had because we describe the emergence of the problems, and then, as you've pointed out, it also suggests that there are ways to think about the response as being multifactorial and integrative, where uh, rather than the more typical biomedical approach that concentrates on uh, uh, a pharmaceutical that's prescribed in a 10 or 15-minute office visit, uh, and that being the sum total of it, that we actually begin to think about how an integrative uh, a response could not only uh, involve multiple uh, sort of interventions at the individual level, but also at the societal level. So, for example, uh, uh, what's the responsibility of healthcare professionals to also be advocating for changes in food availability for people in their communities or in their schools or mm -hmm. for a change in the farm bill subsidies or for reform of the Toxic Substances Control Act, the, chemi the Chemical Regulatory uh, Act uh, that badly needs uh, reform in this country, hasn't been reformed since it was passed back in the 70s, uh, or, or energy policy which has a strong influence on air quality, uh, the amount of exercise people get, and so on. Uh, these are just questions about the, the, that when we begin to think in an integrative way, there are multiple levels at which we can act um, uh, as well as at the individual level. So, for example, I had a heart attack about nine years ago and started Dean Ornish's Integrative Heart Program. Uh, and that program is diet, exercise, stress reduction, and group support. Now, if you think about it, if you think about what happens to immigrant populations when they come into the United States, they begin to eat a poor diet, they get less exercise, increase in stress in many ways, and traditional forms of group support fall apart. So at an integrative level, you could yeah. say if you're looking for variables that uh, on the individual level, can actually help reverse coronary artery disease, yeah. which is an extraordinary finding. You know, at very, by the way, very inexpensively compared to pharmaceutical interventions and so on. Uh, those four would not be a bad set to think about not only for heart disease, but for diabetes and obesity and uh, also at a, at a collective societal level. Yeah, I think that last point is really important. I recently reviewed some of the literature on what, what's the evidence that you can actually delay or prevent the onset of diabetes, for example, mm -hmm. in people who are at risk. So if somebody has one or more of the components of the metabolic syndrome already, they're clearly at risk for developing overt type 2 diabetes. What's the evidence that interventions can prevent or delay that? And the evidence is there. Mm -hmm. uh, you can with, with, with this kind of integrative approach. It largely uh, uh, focuses on dietary interventions and exercise. These are the, mm -hmm. these are the two things that for, for that. And as you point out, for heart disease, you add stress reduction and social mm -hmm. support. Uh, they're resource intensive. You reach fewer people, but they work. 
So now some people are starting to ask the question, well, what happens if we begin to think about that applied at societal levels? And so it's my understanding there are a couple of countries in Europe right now and, 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 and the UK that are actually beginning to ask themselves, how do we begin to create that set of interventions at a societal level? Um, and that's bringing a public health model to it so that if you can begin to shift these set, the set of risk factors, not in just the individual, but for everybody uh, in a society, mm -hmm. you can get a really, presumably you're going to get a bigger bang for the buck uh, if, if it's effective, but it remains to see, be seen how effective it'll be. So just for an example, uh, in other words, the, the critique of of some friendly colleagues of the ecological paradigm of health is that it a focus on the system makes it more difficult to say which particular variables you're going to yeah. focus on. So yeah. the people who want to focus on chemicals and endocrine disruptors or electromagnetic fields or whatever it is that is their particular issue um, can often be frustrated by a systemic analysis. But on the other hand, if you look at it from the point of view of integrative health, what it suggests is that in a complex uh, system like this, um, almost any useful beneficial intervention will reduce stress and increase resilience somewhere in the system. And so there are opportunities for everybody to participate in solving these problems. Uh, because any useful thing, whether you're reducing income disparities or improving the food system or helping kids get better exercise in school or you know, in, improving social support or whatever it is, anything useful, both at the individual level and at the societal or ecosystem level, will somewhere in the system benefit. I think that's exactly right. right. There are a lot of entry points here. Right. And... and, and uh, uh, I think it's really important to get away from this hierarchical uh, uh, modeling where you say, look, this is what's really important and, and this other business is not. First of all, we don't know that often because of these complex interactions. We may convince ourselves that something has a trivial impact, but until we really figure that out, I, I think because of these interactions, an input at a certain place and a certain time into a system can have magnified effects that we would never predict because of these emergent properties. But I totally agree. There's, there are many entry points into this. People who are doing good work, whatever it is, whatever is their passion, whatever they're interested in, they're, they're working on a larger whole as well. The problem is, of course, is, uh, is with limited resources, where, where do you prioritize action? Because there may not be the resources, the interest, the funding, etc., to 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 uh, try to change all the, the different factors or try to impact them in a way that's positive. And so how do you prioritize that? Uh, and how do you do this without providing a exit door for people that, or whatever entities that want to pass the buck and say, well, it's not us, we're not responsible, it's really this and this and this over here. I think you have to be really careful with this. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm speaking as an activist and mm -hmm. somebody who looks, where do we push to get the most impact? Uh, and it may be two or three or four things, but how do we choose? Well, on that point, Ted, if, if, if you... I think Charles raising an important question. Uh, if, if you were able 
to prioritize the major areas that you think just intuitively or based on your study of uh, these things. By the way, you've, you've done so much work on uh, neurodevelop neurodevelopmental disorders, on aging and neurodegenerative disorders, on a whole range of, uh, of these things that we haven't had time to talk about in detail. But if you were uh, looking at the opportunities to shift um, ecological health um, in the United States, just to take that as an example, what are the four or so key variables that you would choose to focus people on? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I, uh, uh, you know, just to be a little bit provocative, uh, what I, I might be inclined to look at things like campaign finance reform. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, we have a political system that is clearly uh, beholden to uh, uh, large amounts of money that have, have just infiltrated the system and influence people's votes and behavior, without question. Mm -hmm. um, and so changing, a, you know, getting a farm bill that was uh, different from today's farm bill that's, that's supporting commodity crops that have created this food system that I've described, uh, getting that changed is going to be very difficult. Uh, it, meaningful change is going to be difficult because of all the money that is supporting the current system. Um, so, you know, many people bring a, a political critique and an economic critique to this, and, uh, and campaign finance is one example of it. And I, I, I think that, that, that that's, that's key. Uh, um, I tend to think in, you know, uh, uh, I mean... Yes, it's important uh, just to pick up on the neurodevelopment. We want to make sure that kids aren't being exposed to excessive amounts of lead, lead and other neurodevelopmental toxicants. Mm -hmm. And we need to continue to do that work. But we also need to be looking uh, at, at, uh, at sort of a higher level of, 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 uh, of housing, mm -hmm. income disparities, um, the food system I've mentioned, energy production, um, uh, that are likely to have a bigger impact on a larger set of conditions and diseases rather than individual diseases. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I would have a hard time naming three or four, I, uh, but rather would support efforts by a number of people at multiple levels. Mm -hmm. Well, I just would add to that, and I, this is perhaps pie in the sky, but this whole idea of how big the gap is. To me, it's just stunning. And so when, you, when you, you work on these other factors, that's important. But I think somehow just talking to people, opening up that conversation is how much do you really need in life? And what we know that having a lot of money maybe gives you other options, but it's not just that. It's, it's kind of the, this, the spiritualization of a society when that kind of thing happens. And, and when do we start talking about the ethics of a community and how we really take care of each other? How much is enough? And, and what is it that really gives our lives value and a sense of meaning? And that might be really surprising to some people. Maybe not, but I just think that's how you start attacking hopefully, this, this, this widening gap in the U.S. is now putting the U.S. really low when you look at well-being among countries uh, in terms of a, a, a range of uh, uh, metrics because, presumably, it's related to this increasing gap between rich and poor in this country. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's a conversation that needs to happen mm -hmm. right away. Ted, one other question about resilience. Um, 
Resilience is a word that is on an upswing in a number of fields. Um, in the field of uh, uh, people who talk, as we do, about sustainable development and sustainability, one hears more and more people replacing sustainable communities with resilient communities. In individual health, in uh, ecosystem health, one hears about resilience. Mm -hmm. What what light can you shed on this increased interest in resilience? I, I, I take the, the notion of resilience to mean that, uh, that a, a system, whether it's an individual or a community or a society or an ecosystem, uh, uh, has a set of operating conditions in which it tends to exist. And it doesn't mean that things are static. We know that they're not. It, 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 things are always changing. Uh, conditions are changing and, 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 and subsystems within are changing. But the extent to which that the system of interest, whether it's an individual or a community, can maintain its essential function despite the changing conditions is a measure of its resilience. The closer it gets to a threshold where if it tips over the threshold and enters a new set of of operating conditions in which it can no longer maintain its essential functions is when that system has been transformed, or that subsystem has been transformed. And it's now in a new set of operating conditions. Um, uh, it may have a new kind of resilience. It may be not mm -hmm. something that's particularly uh, desirable, mm -hmm. but it's now in a new place. So the, set, the extent that it can maintain its essential function. Now, within that concept, and we bring it to, to individuals, is this interesting other concept that's related called the allostatic load, which is uh, a, a qualitative assessment of the total stressors mm -hmm. uh, at, that an individual or a community might be undergoing, uh, that uh, the higher the allostatic load, the, the, the harder the individual's physiology needs to work in order to, to maintain some sort of homeostasis. Uh, so if you're living in a world of constant stress, whether it's social stress, economic stress, stress from toxic chemicals, bad diet, whatever it is, um, your physiology is working harder to sort of maintain homeostasis, uh, keep you in this sort of where you, uh, normal set of operating conditions. Uh, and that, uh, over time, has a wearing effect and is hypothesized to be one of the explanations for why uh, people who are under chronic social stressors and others uh, just have poorer health and die earlier, have earlier onset of heart disease, diabetes, and a whole range of other conditions because of this, uh, this accumulation of stressors over time. So they've lost some resilience. They've maintained as long as they can, and then things start to fall apart. Ted, uh, you travel all over the country and indeed around the world helping uh, activist groups and community groups uh, with the science questions about uh, chemicals and all of these issues that we've been discussing. Um, uh, last question for you. Uh, why do you choose to spend your life doing this? And if uh, you could choose what you might be remembered for, 
what would you hope people might say about what you did? Well, uh, to the first question, I, um, I, I'm doing this because it's interesting to me. Uh, I find it an interesting way to live. Uh, but I'm also really drawn to this. Uh, I, th I think uh, it, I sort of, it's my nature to be drawn to this more integrative view of, of the world that we live in. Um, and and I, when, I, when I step back from a, a, a complete focus just on the practice of medicine and saw medicine as embedded in this larger set of issues, public health and ecosystem health, it, it, I felt much more at home. So uh, in some sense, it gets back to the whole notion of health being really uh, a, a representation of the notion of, health, of wholeness. And um, uh, this, isn't, this isn't in any way to, uh, to be a commentary on people who choose to focus on individual things as specialists because that's terribly important. Uh, but, I, uh, but, but my interests are, are, are sort of as a more as a generalist and more, and, and more an attempt to integrate. So uh, I do it because it's interesting and I'm drawn to it. And I actually think it's an important time uh, in the world right now. I think we're living in uh, what some people call an essentially new world. Uh, it, uh, it's, it's a different time in human history compared to mm -hmm. at any time in the past. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're watching uh, enormous changes as a result of human activity over the last 50 years, uh, manifesting climate change and a whole number of other things that... Uh, deserve some attention, I think. So that's why I'm doing it. Ted Shetler, Cheryl Patton, thank you both for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael.